Hello and welcome to Sci-Fi FX Podcast. I will be your host today, Carl, and with me I have Troy. Hello. And Big Dog. Hi there. And today we have a special guest star, and unlike the old Police Squad TV show, we don't kill our guest star during the opening credits. So without further ado, Max Allen Collins. Boy, that's a relief to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Never has suspense been brought out and dispensed with so quickly. <laughs> well, speaking of killing people, it sounds to me like just looking at your body of work, you know yeah. your way around crime fiction. As near as I can tell, you are pretty much the guy that resuscitated it. Well, that's very kind of you. I don't know if it needed resuscitating or if I had anything to do with it, but... I do. I am starting to feel like uh, I'm I'm somebody who came in on the very tail end. I mean, very tail end of the the, the sort of first great wave of crime fiction, and and that's kind of that's kind of cool because uh, I have a connection to to a lot of great writers who who just aren't here anymore. Although, though, thankfully, their work is. And my understanding is. Titan Books actually contacted us and let us know that you have one of Mickey Spillane's unfinished My Camera novels coming out this Tuesday. That is correct. Although and we, we haven't gotten our we haven't gotten the the review copy yet, so ah. I'm hoping to get that in a couple of days. But um, I hope so. tell us about Complex Ninety. Well, uh, Complex Ninety is one of a half dozen. Uh, my camera novels that Mickey left behind unfinished, and they they really stretched throughout his career, uh, and going back as early as 1947, up to uh, the book he was working on at the time of his death, and a book before that that uh, he'd been working on, like in the late 90s, and then there there was one from the 60s, and there was one from the you know from the 70s, and this one is also from the 60s. Um, when I was deciding what order to do these books in, because the you know my mission was to bring out these half dozen my camera novels that that Mickey had started, and and I I should mention that unlike a lot of the really famous mystery series, things like Perot by Agatha Christie and Perry Mason by Earl Stanley Gardner and uh, you know Nero Wolf by Rex Stout, those series all had you know, sometimes as many as a hundred entries, and uh, even I, Nero Wolf had something like fifty books and twenty twenty four novellas or something. Mickey only published thirteen My Camera novels during his lifetime, which is a pretty small box score for a character that is as famous as My Camera and had the impact on popular culture that My Camera had. So it's a lot like with, Ian Fleming and James Bond. Yeah, and he didn't write that many. Although, though, uh, I think I think he probably wrote more than Mickey. Uh, and the, so the idea was, if I've got half a dozen my camera books that that have genuine spoiling content, I mean, these are all a hundred pages or more in terms of the manuscripts I found. Wow. And and they they would have sometimes they would have plot notes, character notes. So sometimes it's more than just 100 pages. And sometimes he had alternate versions of chapters. I mean, there, there was a lot of material there to deal with. So um, Complex 90 was one of the most interesting because in it, uh, 
Mike Hammer deals with, you know, with Russian agents. It's very much of, because it was written in 64, right in the midst of that first James Bond movie uh, wave where, where espionage spies, you know, I was in high school at that time, and, I mean, we carried, you know, briefcases with us full of stuff because of the briefcases and From Russia with Love. And oh, Man from cool. Uncle was on TV, and uh, you know we, we we some of the if you go back and see how bad some of those spy movies were at the time, like the Mad Helm movies and so on. We went to all of them. We didn't care. It was a it really was a craze. So to to find this unfinished Cold War thriller with with all this espionage stuff going on in it, it was written by you know really the the great mystery writer of the era in that genre was, uh, you know, really exciting. But I held it back a, a little while because Mickey is, you know, kind of considered to be a conservative or right-wing uh, person. I, I personally am not, but I did not want to come out with a, you know, anti-commie book right off the, you know, right, right off the top of the, this process. Sure. So, so I waited until I'd done some of the other ones, like the, Last year we did um, a book called Lady Go Die, which was literally a 1947 novel that was the sequel to I, the Jury that he began and, and left unfinished. And I, the Jury was the first of my camera and is one of the most famous mystery novels of all time. So oh, yes. that was a pretty cool, and that was another very significant book to bring out. Um, but... This one is, is quite interesting because he he also is dealing with the aftermath of what occurred in a book called The Girl Hunters. And The Girl right. Hunters is interesting for several reasons. One, of, one is that Mickey had not written a Mike Hammer book for 10 years. He had the, at his peak, he stopped writing. And he actually left Mike Hammer to die, apparently to die in a burning building at the end of Kiss Me Deadly in 1952. Now, this would be like... Stephen King finishing the stand and then taking a 10-year hiatus. It yeah, just That's absurd. It's, it's crazy. But for various <laughs> reasons, he did. So when he came back, it was very much a comeback novel. And it was, it was published in 1961, and it was, again, espionage, Russian agents, although it was all set in the United States. And um, this is a sequel to that, that book. And that's also exciting that that it it deals with uh, a character called the Dragon, who was uh, the the villain in the first uh, in in the first book in, in the right. Girl Hunters. And, and you know, one of the things that I had fun with was because in the section of in Mickey's section of the book, he begins he be, he began with Mike Hammer at the Pentagon being uh, interrogated, debriefed after after emerging from Russia where he had killed a whole bunch of Russian agents and he's in the midst of a storm of political controversy and demands by the Russian government that he be returned to them. And he's in the beginning of, of Mickey's manuscript, unfinished manuscript, Hammer is being questioned about this. And Mickey had about two paragraphs where he, he talks about what, what happened in Russia, uh, part of which was that he escaped from a, from a prison. This was never written, and Mickey did not write anything else about that. He starts the story after that has all occurred. 
So one of the things I did was I said, well, let's go to Russia. Let's see what happened over there. So I wrote, you know, I wrote a whole section after, after the opening happens with the interrogation. We flash back to the Russian trip. And, uh, we, you know, we're right there with the jailbreak. And it's, it, it was a lot of fun. And that's a lot of what I try to do with these manuscripts is I try to follow his lead. Sometimes stuff he skipped, I will write. Sometimes stuff he sort of indicates he's going to do, I will write. And uh, I think the result is pretty authentic. This sounds impressive. How do you go about just trying to mesh your voice with his and still keep your own identity in that? It's a really good question because, um, you know, I personally feel if I were to try to really write, you know, pastiche, uh, I think the, the odds of it being becoming parody, uh, unintentional parody, are, are, are strong. A couple things bear on that. One is that I grew up on, on Mickey Splane. He was my favorite mystery writer when I was, you know, 13. So right. from age 13 to maybe, you know, 21, I was inhaling this stuff. I was taking it like vitamins. <laughs> and, and I read it and reread it over the years. And again, he, he didn't have a huge body of work. So uh, a pretty good familiarity grows up. Sure. And... When Mickey, when Mickey was kind enough to, toward the end of his life, uh, to, to, to basically entrust all this material to me, he told his wife, Jane, he said, when I'm gone, there's going to be a treasure hunt around here. Give everything you find to Max. He will know what to do with it. And, and he had already asked me to finish the last book. He said, I don't think I'm going to get this book finished. And if I don't, I want you to finish it. And, you know, so I was given his trust and his seal of approval. And I knew he liked my work. He, he particularly liked my Nate Heller books. So I, I went into this feeling like I'm, I would never say I'm an equal to him, but like I was a valued collaborator. I was given, he did not say, finish these books and pretend to be me. He, he said, you know, finish these books. And so what I do is I, I, I immerse myself in his fiction for several weeks before I start the book, and I read the book. I read books written around the time that he wrote this particular, you know, fragment. Like for for this book, I read, you know, I read the Mike Hammer, fore and aft. You know, I read the one before it, and I read the one after it. Right. And and I read read them several times, and I went through with markers like a college student, highlighting stuff, and really kind of got got in the swing of it that way. And then I just write it. I, 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 I try to be faithful to Hammer's character, and, and that dictates it right there. But I don't entirely make an effort to, to you know, subvert my own, my own writing style. And so the front end of, of these books, the first maybe two-thirds of the book, is a combination of Mickey and me, where I've done some rewriting and some expanding. I've treated his work like first draft, not like the Holy Grail, sure. And because uh, it's the stuff he didn't publish, uh, so I and he said, you know, I'll know what to do. I trust his. Ju he trusted my judgment. I trust his judgment. And I would do things like, uh, well, I mentioned the Russian thing to you. Mm -hmm. uh, a typical, a more typical thing would be, um, I know in late in, in in a book called the the Big Bang in the first chapter, uh, 
Mike goes to talk to Pat Chambers, who is his cop friend, who who's who back in, on the Stacy Keat show was played by Don Stroud for right. the, the trivia fans out there. The great Don Stroud, and when Mickey's scene begins, the DA has just stormed out after he and Hammer have had a, a huge argument. So I backed up and did the argument so that it would, I start again, you know, so that's a, a way, okay, this is something that's in the story that Mickey dictated, and that gives me something to, it's not filler, it gives me ch- something that I can genuinely add to it. And that's the kind of thing I will do. Uh, and I, a lot of times if he's, if I feel like he's left something out, he's, he's, you know, sort of skipped a beat, I try to put that beat in. So there's Spillane material in these books, deep, deep, deep into the books, uh, usually two-thirds of the way before you run into just my work. And at that time in the process, I'm so immersed in my camera that most people, I rarely have somebody can say, well, that, you wrote that, and Spillane wrote that. But I'm really not trying to imitate him as much as be true to him, uh, which may sound like I'm dodging it, but I think if I really, really tried to imitate him, uh, that that whole self-parody thing could, could just really, really come up and hit me in the face or that elsewhere. Is, that is quite easily one of the best answers I've ever heard to a question like that. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you. It really sounds like a daunting task. You know, it's such a labor of love for me. Uh, I mean, I, I do a lot of work and I've done a lot of work, but there, because this harks back to my childhood enthusiasm, I, I'm creating the books that I wanted to read that Mickey didn't give me. For whatever reason, he put these manuscripts aside. And these are, I mean, the first time I knew about these uh, it was a visit in the early 80s. I went down to see him in South Carolina, and, and he, right before bedtime, he handed me these two manuscripts. And one was the first hundred pages of the Complex 90, and the other was the first hundred pages of uh, the Big Bang. And, of course, I, I read them deep into the night, as you might imagine. And, okay. and at, at breakfast the next morning, uh, he said, what would you think? I said, they're, they're great. I mean, finish these. Please finish these. It's like, ah, I want to do something new. And, you know, <laughs> you take them home with you. You take them home with you, and maybe someday we'll do something with them. And, wow. and about... Two or three weeks later, Hurricane Hugo hit his house and destroyed it. Yikes. Ooh, wow. And, and I always have wondered, would those manuscripts have made it? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I took them home and put them in, you know, and I put them in a file cabinet drawer, and I thought, you know, someday, if I'm here and Mickey isn't, I'm going to finish these. Uh, and um, so I get a kick out of these, these books. <laughs> I'll tell you, the most fun I have, in this process. In fact, the, the most fun I have uh, almost any kind is when I get to hear the audiobooks read by Stacy Keach. Oh, that's got to be all kinds oh, of yeah. fun. Awesome. <laughs> Absolutely awesome. I mean, See, I didn't even know they had audiobooks for this kind of stuff. I, I looked them up on audio, on uh, audible the other day and yeah. saw the list and I just started queuing up on the wish list. <laughs> Man, I mean, and, and the other thing you, you, you might be interested in is I did two, working from some unpublished plain material, uh, we did two 
radio style plays. Uh, they're 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 sort of like movies for the mind. They're 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 about an hour. Each one of them is almost two hours. Like like I think, yeah, about two hours each. Full cast, Mike Hammer, again audio movies with uh-huh. Stacy Keach as Mike Hammer. Uh, and we old did it in radio. That, oh, we did it in Chicago. Oh, old radio, yeah, fabulous. And we we did them in Chicago, and the cast that worked with Stacy were were phenomenal. A lot of Second City people, you know, got all those great Second City people in Chicago. I don't know if you remember Tim Kazarinski, who was on yeah. Saturday Night Live, and and you know, in in the Police Academy movies, he he played one of the major parts in both of them. Uh, it, it, and uh, one of them, uh, it's, they're called The New Adventures of Mike Hammer. And uh, the first one that I did was called The Little Death. And that actually won the Audi for Best Original Work. And those are very un, you know, underappreciated. People don't know about those. And it's, it's Stacy Keach back playing Mike Hammer again. And he loves it when he's able to do this stuff that isn't quite as laundered as what he used to have to do. Not that those shows weren't a lot of fun, but I mean, I give him, I give him really tough Mike Hammer stuff to do. Sure. And, tough, and just, nasty stuff. You know? Just for our listeners, um, those are available through audible.com. I just pulled them up. The new adventures of Mickey Splain's Mike Hammer. I'm Great. all over it. So, there but... were three, three volumes. I did not write the first volume. I wrote volume two and volume three. And the first volume is actually several stories. And mine are, are you know, like complete, as I say, movies for the mind. They have all three of them out there. So. Yeah, and they're, they're a lot of fun. And, and as I say, they're cast beautifully. Uh, Stacy Keach does the music. He's, he's a very talented musician. And in his home studio, he did all the music. And we had permission to use the Harlem Nocturne theme which was the theme of the TV show. Nice. Oh, cool. So if, if you have any interest or nostalgia for... It's one of the fun things about my camera is that because of the, you know, the impact he had on the culture, you've got a bunch of different generations that, that know him different ways. So you, know, you have the, the baby boomers and, 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 that, and that generation before the baby boomers who know him from that first wave of popularity. And then you know, then then you have the the, the Stacy Keach TV show in the '80s, and of course he came back in the '90s with another TV show, and of course Mickey all during that period was doing those Miller Lite commercials where he spoofed Mike Hammer. <laughs> that that oh, series oh, of commercials, do you remember those? I remember <laughs> those. <laughs> they ran. Do you know that 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 series of commercials, and it wasn't just him; it was the ones with the athletes. You know the. Uh, you know, was it less light, less light, more filling, or whatever? Uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, that campaign, ad campaign, went 18 or 19 years, <laughs> which is was one of if the two or three longest running ad campaigns. And a lot of people knew him, Mickey and Mike Hammer, through that. And then it's been very interesting to me to watch the uh, the the film Kiss Me Deadly from 1955, the Robert Aldrich uh, film noir just yeah. gradually build into being this classic film. This going from a, a a B movie that was dismissed and ridiculed into a film that is considered to, by most people to be in the very upper reaches of, of film noir, uh, and and that has exposed people to to the Mike Hammer character, and continues to. 
Yeah, I mean, most people I know, they, they rank him right up there with Philip Marlowe and Sam Spade. I mean, he's one of the big three. I, I agree. I, I, I most certainly agree. And those are the three that had the most, you know, impact. I mean, there certainly are other other characters that, that have had an impact. Oh, sure. Uh, uh, you know, the, the Lou Archer character, a lot of people feel uh, Ross McDonald is, has a literary value that, that Splane does not. I'm not in total agreement with that. But <laughs> and certainly Robert B. Parker had wonderful success with Spencer. Sure. Uh, however, you know, there's a lot of Splane in there. His character Hawk is definitely the, you know, the Mike Hammer id to his, you know, to his detective. Right. And, but the thing about Mickey and Mike Hammer is that Mike Hammer was, and you got to go beyond Private Eye into action hero, action adventure hero. Exactly. He's where they all, and he was the first guy to just say, I'm going to find the bad guy and I'm going to kill him. And I don't care who he is, it's a man, a woman, uh, transvestite, I don't care. They kill my friend, they kill my client, they're going to die. I'm not going to turn them into the police, they're going to die. That was radical. Rough and anything you've seen in the culture with that kind of character, with that touch of vigilantism, for, for good or ill, because some people think that's a terrible thing, but you, you know, it's, it's, it's Billy Jack, it's Jack Bauer, it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's Shaft. I mean, Shaft is absolutely my camera. That's how they marketed him. And, and James Bond was originally marketed as the British Mike Hammer. Right. Uh, and the moment in Dr. No, the moment in Dr. No that was a significant moment it, where, where, where Bond shoots the guy, says you've had your six, and he shoots him when the guy's out of bullets. Yep. That's the, that, that would not have happened without Mike Hammer. I'd believe that. Yeah. And if you read Casino Royale, and of course the, the movie was actually quite faithful to it, surprisingly, and it's a terrific movie. Yeah. But Casino Royale was very much a, uh, you know, a Spillane imitation. It's very tough. It ends, it, it ends very similar to, to uh, I, the jury. And, uh, but, but that kind of gets lost in the shuffle. So part of my job is to, to remind people or educate them if necessary. And, uh, you know, I did a documentary on, on Mickey that is, is featured on the Criterion Blu-ray. Of, uh, of Kiss Me Deadly. So if you've got that on your shelf, or if you ever add that to your shelf, be sure to check out the special features, uh, because the my biography of Mickey, is a documentary biography, is, is tucked on there. Excellent. Oh, this, this is too much fun. Now, I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to have to go way, way back into the nostalgia here because I okay. really want to know the story. How did you meet Mickey Spillane? Well, um, as a kid, you know, I wrote him letters, and I wrote him many, many fan letters. Uh, and I wrote him letters all through, I mean, I mean, not every day of my life, but I mean, every year I'd write two or three letters to him and all, up, up, into, up through college. And right before I got out of college, I sold my my first two novels, mm-hmm. and um, I, I literally my la- the last semester of my uh, my graduate degree at the University of Iowa Writers Workshop, I sold two novels. And when they came out a year later, I sent them to Mickey, and then he wrote me back. And he had never written me back. He had never written me back. But when I sent him the book, he wrote me back 
welcoming me to the to the profession. Very gracious, fairly long letter. I had a, I still have a friend. So that's like 1973, and so. Um, I probably wrote him a number. I probably wrote him another dozen times over the years, and sent him other books, including a book dedicated to him. And I never heard a word. Just that one letter. Okay, so cut to uh, early '80s. It's in uh, it's in Milwaukee. It's the big mystery convention, the BoucherCon that they have once a year. That's the big mystery fan, mystery writer convention. Okay. It, it travels from city to city. It was in Milwaukee that year, and because it was in Milwaukee. Uh, and Milwaukee is the beer town. They got uh, Miller Lite, Miller Beer, to bring Mickey in as the special guest at the convention. So the people from the convention gave me a call, and I'm fairly starting to be fairly deep, in, not deep into my, my career, but I'm a little bit known at that point, in, at least among mystery fans. And the people involved with the um, convention said, uh, we've got Mickey Splane coming in. I said, well, yeah, I know. And they said, would you be the liaison between Mickey and the convention? We, he's never appeared at a convention before. He was reticent about, because you know, he had a lot of criticism in the world of, of uh, mystery criticism and mystery, I mean, he's supposedly the only person that the Mystery Writers of America ever refused membership to. <laughs> they were very jealous of him. There was a lot of bad feeling toward him because they thought he was a right-wing lunatic. And, uh, you know, and the fact that I, I think that's one of the fun things is that he and our politics couldn't have been more different, but, but we, it did never stand in the way whatsoever between us, nor does it stand in my way to write my camera exactly the way, you know, my, who, who my camera is. Cause that's, you know, that's, that's the character. So anyway, I said, yeah, I'd love to be his, uh, you know, I'd love to help you out. And I was very nervous. I know the night before I, uh, was to meet Mickey, I didn't sleep. I mean, all night. Because, you know, if you have somebody who's your hero, and, you know, not a lot of famous people are, are, are let's face it, are, are not warm, wonderful human beings. Sure. Uh, they're much too busy being famous. And, <laughs> you know, so I, I thought it's going to, I was trying to prepare myself to be crushed, you know. And so we go to the hotel, and I go up with the guys from the convention, and they knock on the door. And door opens. There's Mickey Spillane standing there, and he he wasn't a tall man, but he was so broad-shouldered. He still had a a larger-than-life persona. And they said, uh, "Well, Mickey, this is uh, this is Max Collins." And, uh, and and Mickey says, "Oh, I know Max. We've been corresponding for years." And I said, <laughs> "That's right, Mickey. A hundred letters from me, one letter from you." And he just. And he started to laugh, and we were just instantly, instantly friends. And uh, you know, and I was down at his place like two weeks later, and we, you know, I wouldn't go down there often. I'd maybe go down once a year and see him. Talked on the phone a lot. Then we started doing projects together. Um, you know, we did we did a comic book called Mike Danger together for yes. uh, Techno Comics, and then we did, I think, oh, probably about eight different anthologies that we did. Some of them of his work short stories and some of them collections of other people's shorts, you know, just mystery anthologies. The one about, you know, like this is full of private eye fiction. This is, we did one called Vengeance is Hers. It was all, all women. All of the writers were women, crime writers, except for Mickey. He had one story in there. So it was Mickey and, and the dames, you know, that was the idea. We did a lot of fun stuff together. He was my uh, son's godfather, uh, you know, so we had a genuine 
friendship. Uh, really, he, he was my literary father, and we had a great, we just had this great relationship. And he, he was cooperated on that uh, documentary I did. When we showed it at the University of Iowa, he, he flew, they flew him in, and he was the guest there. And so we have wonderful times. Uh, and then uh, when, he, when he became ill, that's when this, he turned to me, and I mean, this is the greatest honor I could ever have been, uh, you know, been given. So, and I, I just, you know, I love these books. I, I love getting to do them. I, there are, I'm hoping I will, uh, there's one more to do out of these six. And it was this, it's a book he had been writing toward the end of his life. It it was designed to be the last my camera, but then after 9/11 he decided he wanted to write a, a my camera in in response to to 9/11. Right. And so, um, but it was designed. You know, Pat Chambers is getting ready to retire, and there's a lot of, you know, sort of uh, very much setting up that this is coming to, that the series is coming to an end and i'll be doing that i'll actually be starting that uh, this month nice so uh and then there are if if people keep responding well to these there are three shorter um fragments more like in the 30 to 40 page range that uh i will also take into to novel form if if a publisher wants them if the readers want them and then periodically i do a short story from a a shorter fragment of his, and I, when I get through those, there'll be enough for a book of of um, my camera short stories. I think I've done six, and, I, and I, I, there's a potential about nine. So, and then I've also done. There's a book called The Consumata that is a sequel to a book called The Delta Factor that is a non my camera, and that one I've already done for Hard Case Crime. Right. And, and uh, then, then, the, then there was a book called Dead Street that was mostly finished, but I, I wrote the last couple chapters and prepared it for uh, publication, and that's also, that was the first thing published uh, posthumously. So, you know, I, I think a lot of people probably think I'm just out here writing these things, you know, and, but the fact is there's just this enormous amount of material that he left behind. Um, and we're all richer for it. Well, I hope I'll get to do. There's three. There's three movie scripts, for example, that have not, uh, you know, were unproduced. Really? They're not my camera scripts, but you know, one is one is kind of a a noir science fiction fantasy set on a, uh, a set at a carnival. Another is a is a is, is sort of a horror crime story with a mummy in it. <laughs> okay. Nice. And then there's there's and get this, he did a Western script for John Wayne. They were very good friends. Oh, wow. And, and it was unproduced. So someday I want to turn those into novels, too. Oh, please do. And if, you know, I it would just see maybe Titan has been great. I've been very, very happy at Titan. Uh, so we'll we'll see if uh, we'll see if we get to do some more. Oh, I certainly hope so. This is like the fanboy playground right here. <laughs> Well, you can tell I was a fanboy, and am a fanboy. Oh, you're, that, you're living the dream. <laughs> no, there's there's no question. I mean, you don't know how much I would like to be able to, you know, grab my 13 year old self and say, "Look, <laughs> look what you're going to get to do. Look, you, look who you're going to get to know." Although my head would have probably exploded. Uh, I mean, I, I wish you could see the big grin on my face right now. I mean, <laughs> this is the kind of story that makes a fanboy weep. 
Well, you know, I think we, you know, we love this stuff. I mean, it's 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 not it's it's not, uh, you know, it's not just eph- ephemeral uh, garbage to us. It's 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 the, you know, it, like I said, I a lot of times I use that expression that I I took them in like vitamins. Um, you know, I I think sometimes about the fact that what if I, <laughs> I suppose I could have been reading Proust when I was in was 13, but instead I was reading Mickey Spillane, and I have no regrets, no regrets whatsoever that I read Mickey Spillane and Jim Thompson and, you know, Rick Stout, and uh, I, I think that that area of mystery and crime fiction is so richly American, and it's had such a wonderful impact on popular culture around the world that I'm proud to be, a, you know, a small part of it. Uh, you know, if you if you think about it, what are the two like really really distinctive American voices in literature, and and one of them is Huckleberry Finn, sure, and the other one is you know Philip Marlowe, and all the things that grew out of it, and then you start thinking, well, then what? And there isn't a, there isn't a then what. Those are the two. Those are the two really great, distinctive, uh, distinctive, true voices that really speak to something in, you know, in the American consciousness or soul or whatever. Um, yeah, it's like the old West is distinctively American. It can't be anybody else. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I and I really do feel my camera. If my camera isn't isn't a Western gunfighter, who is? <laughs> uh, I mean, that is really That's true. What the private to me that's really a lot of what the private eye is. The private eye is that, and that's why you don't really see him. And I don't think anybody else can do the private eye very well. Then, then the I'm sure there's some great ones I'm not thinking of. There's certainly some great crime done. I mean, there's a lot of great crime stuff in, uh, you know, in Great Britain. Some of the best, uh, some of the best private eye stuff in recent years has probably come out of the, you know, out of out of the Nordic countries. Uh, there's a character called Varg Vim that's a really great character that that's out of I think Denmark. I mean, and these guys are there's some writers there, uh, you know, a guy who does Wallander. Uh, I mean, there's some really good stuff starting to happen, but it's it's only be, it's only happening because we put the, you know, they learned from us. Frankly, this is this is something. Even Edgar Allan Poe wasn't British. That's true. I yeah. mean, you know, I mean. This is ours. This is like jazz. This is like comics. <laughs> like rock and, and roll. And rock and roll. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't think there's any question that Mickey, you know, I mean, Mickey happened when Elvis happened, basically. <laughs> there's, you know, rock around the clock. Rock around the clock is played over the, the credits of Blackboard Jungle, and it was written by uh, Evan Hunter, who was Ed McBain. One of the great mystery writers uh, who who died a couple of years ago, but one of the great great mystery writers uh, uh, in America who wrote the eighty seventh precinct mysteries. This stuff is all intertwined, and and uh, I'm quite fascinated by by I guess you'd now call it mid century popular culture. You know, it's it's hard to imagine that the Beatles are are not even ten years away from from Elvis. That Elvis happens, and not even ten years later, the Beatles happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fast. It's really fast. It's 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 incredibly fast. And I, you know, I feel very. I mean, I'm 
I don't feel lucky to be the age I am because it means I won't be here, you know, in 40 years unless I, <laughs> unless, unless medicine really, really comes a long way. I was going to say, you never know. <laughs> you never know. But, I mean, I really like when I lived. I really am glad that I lived when I lived and, uh, and enjoyed the popular culture uh, that I enjoyed. I'm not to say that there's not some wonderful stuff out there today. I, I kind of feel like there's so much stuff out there today that it's hard to know what to appreciate. Um, the, you, you don't have that shared, quite as many shared experiences as, as, as I had when I was a kid. You know, there, there's no, everybody saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Yeah. yeah that's one of the things I've noticed. Everything seems to be so fragmented. So it's, it's like when I try to connect these dots, like you're connecting them, yeah. the people I talk to, they're so fragmented. It's like, if it's not in this little narrow vein, mm-hmm. they have no idea what I'm talking about. And that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm enjoying talking to you because I, I want to share this with everybody I know. Well, I, I remember the first time I noticed this was when I was working a little more heavily in the comics industry, and uh, probably in the set, the late '70s, early '80s, and I started seeing these these comic artists who were imitating the guys who imitated Jack Kirby, right. and these guys didn't know who Jack Kirby was. There's something wrong with that. It hurts, doesn't it? Wow. Yeah, the the people who you know somebody who is into comics and they don't know who Alex Raymond was or who Al Cap was or Will Eisner was or Chester Gould was or Johnny Craig and the ECs. This stuff, uh, you know, it, it. I really feel like you got to go to the source of this stuff to to really get the real the real deal. Absolutely. And that's when you mentioned Sam Spade. Absolutely. What's the thing about? There's no better private eye novel than the Maltese Falcon. Agreed. Period. Agreed. He, he, you know he he writes arguably the first completely because the Continental Op was like a Pinkerton type agent. This the the pure private eye is Sam Spade, and in that novel, Hammond invents everything, perfects it, and walks away. It's crazy. I mean that's and uh, and you know and then then the only thing missing was the voice and then Chandler comes in and does it and what Mickey I think added was the post-war loss of innocence and yeah. this incredibly primitive poetry that he had um, read the first chapter of Kiss Me Deadly when the, you know the woman jumps in front of the car and holds her arms out and he swings the car over and almost splashes into a cliff. It, 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 it's, or the beginning of One Lonely Night where he's walking across the bridge yeah. in the snow and, and you know, a girl commits suicide because she, she's afraid of him. And he's the good guy. I mean, this, this stuff is... Um, this is the real deal. And yeah. I mean, a lot one, of, one of the things I, I see when I, when, I, when I think about the Cold War... Everything in that era is all about paranoia. Oh, yeah. And Mike Hammer's one of those characters that he just cuts through paranoia like a knife. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, he's a more complicated character than he's usually given credit for because he, he you know, you, you see him talk very confidently. And he talks about, he talks about everything in terms of black and white. And that is how... Oh, 
he's usually discussed himself. But if you really read the books, you see that he's, he's, he's trapped in a very gray world, and the results of his black and white treatment of, 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 of the world gets him into a lot of trouble, not just legal trouble, but emotional trouble. Sure. I mean, he, he, the, they always talk about the fact that he, you know, he kills a woman at the end of Eye the Jury. Well, he spends the rest of the books feeling guilty about it. Yes. And being haunted by it. Nobody ever talks about that. Uh, the, the One Lonely Night begins, again, with him on that bridge because he's depressed and maybe, maybe even contemplating suicide himself. It's kind of in there because a judge has dressed him down for his vigilante activities. And that whole book is a response by Mickey Spillane to the critics who have, you know, who, who have beaten him up the way the judge beats up Mike Hammer. And then, of course, at the end of the book, my camera decides, because he's psychotic, that God put him on the planet to get rid of the bad people. Yep. And this is the good, you know, and, and people think, and people sort of take that at face value, like they can't imagine that they, the, the writer might kind of know what he's doing. I don't know what they think he's <laughs> channeling it. or, But, I mean... As if Mickey didn't know how outrageous he was, as if when he did some of the black humor, he wasn't grinning. I can tell you, he had, he, he had one of those wicked senses of humor. I mean, he, he, when he would tell me, and this is one, something else that happens with these books, is that sometimes I don't have the ending of the book, but Mickey told me the ending of the book. Nice. Because we would, on these visits, we'd go up to one of his offices, it'd be late at night, and he'd start telling me the Oh, I'm working on this, my camera. Wait till you hear the ending. And then he, then I'd be like a kid around the campfire while he's telling me the ending. And he's just cackling because of some, you know, violent, ironic thing that he does at the end of the story. <laughs> I, he absolutely saw the humor in it. He absolutely, my, my wife always said that he, well, she would always say, he's a scamp. And I thought that was perfect. That is Nikki perfect. Nicky Spillane was a scamp. <laughs> and, and in and, the you end, know, he's remembered and the critics aren't. Yeah. Well, that's very true, and you know, um, but I, I have I have a great I have a great love for you know for fans for for readers because they you know particularly if they have enthusiasm for the work because that's that's the engine that's my engine is is if I can first of all I'm trying to write a book always trying to write a book that I want to read I mean that's that's what the writer should always try to do. The book right. that is, you know, don't read, don't don't write some book like something that's already out there. You write the book that you'd like to see that nobody's doing, and and then uh, that's, you know, when, when I when I do encounter people that really get it, it's uh, very gratifying, very very gratifying. Well, going on to your work here, your uh, your solo work, I'm I'm looking at the chronology here, and it seems that. After you were done with your uh, Road to Perdition, yeah. you went back to your Nathan Heller books. How did this I, go under my radar? Well, I went back to I, the re, the reason I, I stopped doing Heller for a while, and I done I had done them from '83 till all the way up through when Perdition came out in like 2001 or 2002, and I was at the end of my contract with Nathan Heller. And they did not offer me another contract. And rather than go out and try to get another contract, I thought, well, look, I, I should, you know, I should pursue Road to Perdition. I should, 
it's famous, it's successful, I've got other stories in mind to tell, so I'm going to focus on that. <clears throat> and that became basically the focus for a while. And, uh, and then I tried to do some things, I tried to do, you know, you get to, I, I got to a certain age where I, I thought, you know, there's some stories I've been thinking about doing, and I better do them. You know, let's get those done. And and uh, I did a couple. I did one called Black Hats that was not published under my name, but when it comes out next time, it will be. But Black Hats is uh, just an idea I'd had that I wanted to do, which was that old Wyatt Earp meets young Al Capone. They're, right. they were they're both on the planet at the same time. I thought that would be cool, and I got that book written. Then I did a book. A historical book set in World War II that was based on my father's experiences in the Navy, where he was a young uh, lieutenant in charge of a black company, and uh, at a time when that was, you know, just ra- the the racial tensions and the, I mean, it was crazy. And I used to hear these stories, and I sat him down and recorded all of his experiences, and then I turned oh, wow. it into this, turned it into a novel called uh, Red Sky and Morning, and. Then I did yes. the disaster novels, which were this this kind of uh, about the, the, there were different historical uh, disasters that like the Titanic and Pearl Harbor and so on. And I each one of them I did about a famous mystery writer. And so I, I kind of tried to do you know do the the Heller technique of a lot of research, but do some of these other stories that I hadn't gotten around to doing. And then after you know after ten years, Heller had been away long enough that I could come back, and I wouldn't have to try so hard to get somebody. To, instead of some publisher saying, "Well, didn't those books not do too well?" or blah 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 blah, you know, they could say, "Oh, Nate Heller, every you know, let's let's be great to do a new Nate Heller." Yeah. And then added to that, the Amazon uh, brought out all the old books, all the old Hellers, and they've done extremely well. So there's a whole new audience reading Nate Heller now, uh, which mm-hmm. makes me makes me very happy because the Heller books are my favorite thing I do, and I think by far the best thing that I do or have, have done. Well, you know we're uh, we're based here in Dallas, and we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the JFK assassination. Right. And I noticed that your last Heller book, which again flew right under my radar for some reason, but uh, it deals with an assassination attempt right before that. Yeah, I did. I, I, I've i done a JFK trilogy within the Heller series. The first, and JFK isn't actually in these books very much, but it's about, the, the first book is called, which you may have run across, is called Bye Bye Baby, and that's about the murder of Marilyn Monroe. Right. And the second book is Target Lancer, which deals with uh, an assassination attempt that was planned uh, to happen about le- about two weeks before the uh, actual assassination in Chicago. Uh, the, there, there, and this is historically. I mean, I've got all. <laughs> this is not just something out of my my fervent imagination. Yeah, that they, this is they, the stories that history forgets. Yeah, and it's in there. I mean, if you go look, it's there. But uh, I mean, the, the Secret Service arrested two, you know, two Cubans, and there's a. Uh, there was a Lee, Lee Harvey Oswald type Marine who was waiting to take the, take the fall. And so I thought when I was going to approach the assassination, because I always said I would do the assassination of JFK and, and Nate Heller. And as I appro- got 
to really reading the research, I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do that, you know, Oliver Stone and a hundred other people haven't done? Right. And then I ran across this thing in Chicago and I thought, well, if I can sell what happened in Chicago and there, who can read this book and not say, well, yeah, the assassination was a conspiracy because it's all the same players, the mob and the CIA and the Cubans and all the people that were involved in the assassination. And then as I read the research, I thought another interesting thing to do, and this is the book coming out in October called Ask Not. Okay. It takes place in 64. In fact, the first chapter is, is, is Nathan Heller taking his son to a Beatles concert in Chicago. Nice. And in, so it's 64, and it is, it is the dead witnesses. It's all about the preponderance of dead witnesses, the As the book begins, we're a couple of weeks away from the Warren Commission issuing its report, and all these witnesses are dropping like flies. And so the book is about, I call it a JFK dead witnesses book. So I've written about the assassination in great detail, but I didn't write, I didn't send him to Dallas in 63. I have him in Chicago in 63, and then I have him in in, in, in Dallas and New Orleans in 64. And it's got, uh, you know, Jim Garrison is in it. And, uh, uh, you know, of course, Robert Kennedy is in it. And it's, I think it's a pretty interesting book. And it will be, like I say, it will be out in October. Okay, looking forward to that one. Yeah, they've done a, they've done a nice cover on it. And we'll see. I mean, you know, sometimes I have the problem being relatively prolific. And so people can't... <laughs> People can't keep up with me. Yeah, I was, I was Relatively. asking these guys. Yeah, I was asking these guys before we called you, wondering when you sleep. Well, you know, I, I get that a lot, and and I, I, it's true that I do work. You know, I do work fairly steadily, but to me, it's a little bit of a misnomer because I am a professional writer. That's what I do. Right. I, yeah. I I'm not a teacher who writes in the summer. I'm not a lawyer who writes on the side, you know. Uh, I'm not a literary guy who writes one book and spends ten ten years studying his navel before he writes the next book. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm a blue collar writer, and I, you know, I work every day like everybody else does. You know, plumbers don't work three three months a year; they work twelve months a year, and I work like that. So, you know, really, I'm doing, I look at other writers and say, I don't understand. What do you do with your time? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm quite serious. I mean, it's like, what do you do with your time? Uh, And, and, you know, a little facetious there, but uh, different people write at different rates. And and I never judge the writing by, you know, who, who reads a book and says, oh, that was a good book. I wonder how long it took him to write it. I mean, it's just irrelevant. If you're fast or you're slow, I mean, the proof is in the finished product. And uh, you know, I'm, you know, I also do a lot of collaborating. No, forget that. I mean, I write with my wife. Right. I, I write with a guy named Matthew Clemens, and I also write with a guy named Mickey Spillane. So, so I have help. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I, I have to admit, though, I'm now starting to. You know, I've I've stopped. I've pretty much stopped doing novelizations. I never say never because if the right one came along, I might consider it. But I don't feel like I should be 
spending my time now on that. Because, you know, I'm, I'm 60, I'm 65, and I don't, you know, so now time is finite. So I, I'm going to do stuff I want to do from here on out. And I, I think thanks to Amazon uh, and what they've done with Nate Heller, I don't have to worry too much about keeping the lights on. <laughs> in the house so so i want to but but i'm working as hard or harder than i've ever worked because of the fact that the time is finite because you know i've got another maybe half dozen to eight nate hellers i want to do and they're hard they're really hard (laughs) and uh you know at some point uh they may be too hard to do so i'm you know i'm just pushing along how far down that conspiracy rabbit hole do you go with these books well, most there's a lot of conspiracy stuff in in, in Nate Heller, uh, but they're very solid. I mean, they're very solid in, in in the research. We're not talking Illuminati here, right? Uh, you know, and it it's you know I I look at it slightly differently. I know there's some very rational, smart people who will say like, you know, the Kennedy assassination is is Lee Harvey Oswald, and even though one of the two government studies into it said it was, you know, a, a conspiracy. Right. And, and the Warren Commission was, like, stuffed with people who were, you know, enemies of Kennedy. And, I mean, Earl Warren was, uh, not Earl Warren, but uh, uh, Alan Dulles was the CIA. First of all, he's the C- head of the CIA. Right. Second of all, Kennedy fired him. I mean, yeah, and what's he doing the on there? Thing, right? Yeah, <laughs> what's he doing on the Warren Commission? Uh, just little stuff like that. Yeah, but anybody, there, anybody who looks at Jack Ruby and <laughs> and says, "Well, I really don't think the mob has anything to do with it." <laughs> really? <laughs> Why don't you go to Wikipedia and look up Jack Ruby and see who this guy was? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's beyond me, you know, and. Uh, you know, have you seen the Sapruder film? Have you seen which way has had jerks? I mean, I, I mean, I know they. Part of it is that you you have people who admire the Kennedys so much, and I, I happen to admire them, but I do not look at them as perfect individuals. And to go down to go down the rabbit hole, so to speak, of why they were killed, you have to deal with things that were bad that they did. Right you know, sanctioning assassinations of other heads of state. And you have to understand why the Kennedy family, why Bobby would maybe not pursue certain things because of what it would do to his brother's legacy. And, and it's, it's complicated. Again, it's, it's the gray world. It's not, it's not Mike Hammer's black and white vision. It, it's, it's extremely gray. Um, and I stand behind. I stand behind everything in those novels. And you get to the end, and there's always a bibliography. And I tell you when I've taken liberties, because they're entertainments. I do take liberties. I do do uh, time compression. I mean, sometimes I, I'll turn six months into two months, so that I can write about it in a. I always say God is a, a very imaginative but untidy plotter. <laughs> I mean, and, and you have to organize it into you know, to a narrative that it, if you're going to do it as an historical novel. But, uh, no, I, 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 I think every, everything I've looked at in any of the Heller books, you're, you're seeing what my opinion is of what, of what really happened. 
Have you ever come across the point where you look back at those novels and say, maybe it was actually this way? You ever changed your mind about anything? Or? I, I haven't changed my mind. The only, the only one that I, I, I would say, I, and even at the time I knew it was a little dicey, uh, the idea that possibly Dillinger lived at, uh, and wasn't shot uh, okay. at the biograph, I think that's, I think there's, that's about a 60-40 that he was shot there. But there's, there's some pretty good, interesting evidence. But no, I think I figured out the Lindbergh case. I think I figured out what happened to Huey Long. I think I figured out what happened to, at Roswell or what happened to Amelia Earhart. Got to remember, we, when I say we, I've, I usually am working with a couple of researchers. There's a guy named George Hagenauer in, uh, who has been with me from the beginning. We prepare for this. Let's say it's a Lindbergh case. God help me, I ever do on that big and complicated again. <laughs> but we read and did research as if we were preparing to do the definitive nonfiction book about the case. And then I write a private eye novel instead. That's how I do this. And, uh, you know, that, that makes the book, that gives the books, I think, some, some interesting, some interesting weight. But it also means I'm not just sitting here thinking, well, what is a fun way that that might have, no, it all comes from, Research, and I have to tell you, I've never, with, with the slight exception of the Kennedy stuff, because I, 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 I've known for years that 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 the Lee Harvey Oswald lone assassin thing was a crock. I mean, I, I knew in high school, I knew, I knew when I saw saw on TV, Lee Harvey Oswald being shuffled around the, you know, the the Dallas police station, and and him looking at the camera and saying, "I'm a patsy," uh, he had that look. You know, it, it's that look that you have when, uh, you know, you've been had. Right. I should have seen this coming. I've been had. It wasn't, it wasn't an assassin's book. I knew that as a, as a kid. And, you know, so that's different. But all the other ones, I've always made sure that I went in with a completely open mind to try to find out what I, what I think happened. Not to, not to go in, because that's bad science. When you have... When you go into something with the um, with the solution that you want to come to, and then you do the research, mm-hmm. you know, well, that's uh, that's not science. I, I you know, or, or it's very bad, bad science. So, and, and you know, sometimes it's dicey because I always think, well, what if I read about the Lindbergh case and. Uh, what I come up with is just what everybody else has come up with. Then this book's not going to be very interesting. But the fact is, I never have. It's always been something a little bit different, sometimes radically different, and um, that's I think one of the one of the pluses about those books. The other thing I would say about the Nate Heller books that I'm really really proud of is that unlike most Private Eye series, the books are all very different. They aren't alike. You know, if you, you, you try to look at some really good, I mean, look at Raymond Chandler. Sure. They're all the same. It's all, you know, there's, there's some thugs, there's a crazy doctor with a needle, and there's, you know, <laughs> a rich guy, you know. The classic a, bits. <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, it's all of the, yeah, it's, 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 it's a repertory company. They're wonderful. They're wonderful, but they're alike. Uh, Heller is definitely not cliché. They don't. They they're different, and it's not not my doing. It's because the cases make it that way. Because the cases are so different, the history is is so different. You know, my wife and I love 
to listen to the Nero Wolf books on tape when we go on trips. I love Nero Wolf. I've heard, I've heard, read or heard most of these books three, four, or five times. I never remember who did it. <laughs> They're all kind of the same, you know. And I'm only there because I like to be in the company of uh, Archie Goodwin and Nero Wolf. I mean, that's and that's plenty. That's 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 plenty for me. So, well, you've that's got awesome. me going. I told you you would get me going. <laughs> that's half the fun. Pull the string, let you go. What's that? Pull the string, let you go. That's half the fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Okay, I got to pick your brain about another classic. Sure. Because my understanding is you pretty much revitalized Dick Tracy too. Yeah, I uh, I was uh, that was the first major job of my professional writing career after I sold the first couple of books. Um, I got to be the guy who who wrote the strip after the creator of the strip, Chester Gould, uh, retired, and I did it for fifteen years, and. Um, I loved it. I was, it was my, uh, you know, we talked about Mickey Spillane and my camera being my childhood obsession, but my actual childhood, that was my obsession of my adolescence. My childhood ex- obsession was Dick Tracy. And so, uh, I mean, yes, I got to, I got to write both of my childhood obsessions. I got to, to meet and collaborate with and know my two creative heroes. It's at the beginning of my career. It was, uh, Chester Gould and Dick Tracy, and in the third act of my career, I was, uh, you know, Mickey Spillane, and so you know it's that I've had a I've had a very I've had a really interesting and I think fairly wonderful career. I have not had some of the fame and some of the financial success that uh, the really upper tier guys have. You know, I. I and I, you know, I don't really mind. I mean, I would like to have the number of readers that somebody like Dean Koontz has or Stephen King has or, uh, you know, James Patterson has. But I, I have no envy for those authors because to have envy for, say, James Patterson, I would have to be willing to take his books and have those be my books. And uh, I don't want them. And it's not to say to denigrate him. I wouldn't want Stephen King's either. I don't want anybody's but mine. Right. Because that's what I came to do. And, and I've been able to make a living now for 40 years without, I mean, the last honest job, I, well, I did teach school a little bit, but that's not really honest work. Uh, <laughs> I, I, the last honest job I had was bagging groceries in college. And uh, I, I take pride in that. This is, Wow. <laughs> I, I am stunned into silence for a moment as I talk <laughs> like this. It's all been a, a concerted effort to avoid real work. <laughs> and, and that's a joke, but it's true. I mean, uh, and I taught for five years but uh, at a community college, but I sold my books. I was still in college. My last semester of college and my first semester of teaching were simultaneous, and that's when I sold my first two books. And once I sold the books, I cut to half time. So even when I taught, I was only on half time. So I've never really had a full time job uh, other than writing some rock and roll. There was a period where I 
made more money from playing rock and roll than I did uh, from writing. But and I still play rock and roll, but um, that's never been my primary. That's been more of a fun thing for me. It's never been my primary mode of income. I'm a weekend warrior kind of guy. <laughs> See, we we haven't even discussed maybe a tenth of your stuff. Oh, well, know. it's just okay. There's too much of it. There's there's you know, it's there's forty years of it. Yeah, I mean, we haven't discussed really Road to Perdition. We haven't even touched on Quarry. Quarry, Quarry is something I'm really proud of because I did do I did write that, begin that at the University of Iowa, and it was written around. 72 it was published in 75 the first quarry novel and uh and now uh cinemax hbo has optioned the quarry series for a, Have they? a, a pilot there's green uh-huh. green lit a pilot and um i didn't write the pilot but it's great it, the guy did a fantastic job and what's really interesting about that to me is since you know you, you mentioned the fact that I, i've written so much period you know historical stuff well quarry was written as a contemporary novel but they're doing it in period and that Brilliant. shows how yeah. that shows how long i've been around <laughs> but but i'm happy about it because it's really a uh the quarry novels and he was the first hitman to to have his own series basically his own book series um they really are books about Vietnam. I mean, they're very much, he was one of the very first, he and Rambo, I talked to David Morell about this, he and Rambo were the first, we think are the first to, uh, you know, sort of damaged, traumatized Vietnam veterans uh, who, who then went on to, to have, and not, Corey obviously didn't have near as much purchases as, uh, as Rambo did, but to, to have some, you know, some success in popular culture. And, uh, uh, you know, so it's really great that, that they're going to do him in period and, and talk about Vietnam, start the thing out with him coming back from Vietnam. And, uh, again, the pilot the guys wrote uh, is, is terrific. Wonderful. I, I, I want to see this go to series. Oh, you, you know I do. And, and I'm actually <laughs> going to get to write some of them if they go to series. So oh, excellent. I'm looking forward to that. So i I got to ask, how how is the transition – from novel to TV, how, how does that work in your mind? You know, I, I had some questions about Quarry because Quarry is very much a first person. Uh, so much of Quarry really flows out of being inside his head. That was a lot of what those books were about. Was there were a bunch of people, including myself, who were writing so-called crook books, where the the bad you know people we used to think of as the bad guy were the the protagonists, like. Right. Richard Stark, Donald Westlake's uh, Parker, for example, okay, uh, who's a thief, and I wanted to take it to the next level by putting by making him not a thief but a killer, and also to make him be in his point of view to to not give you the distance of third person. So so that first person aspect of of Corey is very important, and I didn't know how they would lick that unless they wanted to do you know voiceover. But they didn't. They didn't do voiceover, at least in the pilot. And I thought, I thought it worked just fine. And they saw the several problems that I, I had never figured out how to. You know, I can't tell you exactly, but there are things they did that I thought were ingenious, and um, I'm very, very hopeful 
for this. And, you know, I've been very interested in screenwriting, and I've done, been involved in independent filmmaking in the Midwest since the mid-'90s, and uh, this may give me an opportunity to actually a actually do some upper-tier you know, work in Hollywood, which, uh, you know, it, it's hard for me because I don't want to live out there, and I never have. I've only, I've, I was born and raised in this little town in Iowa. I've never left here. And, you know, so that, that makes it difficult. It's difficult to be, you know, to be a film director and a screenwriter when you, you don't want to live in California. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's, that's always been true and probably always will be true. Wow. Okay. I'm, I'm going to ask you a really sensitive question, and I apologize if this comes off the wrong way. Sure, sure. But it's it's a criticism that I've seen on the Internet time and again, and you're exactly the man to answer this question. Because I know that you're you are one of the – is it the founding member of the, the Tie-In Writers Association? Yeah, uh, I'm the, actually I'm the current president of the Iowa – or the uh, International Association of Movie and Tie-In Writers. Okay, so – between your Dick Tracy work and your Mike Hammer work and all the tie-ins that you've done, I hear a lot of criticism out there from writers that, quite frankly, haven't been published yet. And this is pretty much just going down the tubes from there. But they and they claim that this kind of thing is professional fan fiction. What's your response to that? Uh, well... <laughs> It's it's uh, it's incorrect because fan fiction is amateur, <laughs> and there's no such thing as professional amateur. Uh, I mean, I don't have, I don't have contempt I don't have contempt for fan fiction at all. I think it's just fine. I do run into some people sometimes who have, you know, contempt for me because you know they're the ones because they watch the Dark Angel show much more religiously. This is this is the dark side of the fanboy thing right. that we talked about. You know yeah. that I can't love Dark Angel as much as as they do. So uh, there's something you know. So so my books are bad or whatever. Well, you know the, the three Dark Angel books I did were totally vetted and and uh, and had in, input from the two creators of Dark Angel, one of whom was James Cameron. So I mean they're 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 no. canon. You know they're and. Uh, uh, you know, I worked the same way on CSI with, you know, people that were involved with the show. They're, everything is vetted. It's it's official. It isn't, you know, fanish. Now, you can say, you know, Chris, my camera, if Mickey Spillane passed me the ball, I don't see how, you know, how, how my camera is anything but authentic. Well, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, and if... <laughs> Chester Gould sort of, you know, gave his blessing to me writing Dick Tracy, you know, so... But, you know, I, I think probably what you're talking about is at least a corollary to the notion that anybody writing licensed stuff is like an inferior writer or a hack or a secondary or whatever. Um, and I feel that's, I mean, I, I, I feel that's very inaccurate because the, the notion of, um, the notion of the tie-in world being just like all garbage is just like somebody saying, well, all comic books are garbage or all, all science fiction is garbage. It's, it's not a genre, but it's a niche. And within that niche, you have people who write extremely well. You have people who write uh, 
well, who write competently, and who suck. And that's true of every genre. Sure. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and so I, I will stand behind most of what I wrote in the time when I was doing tie in stuff. I'm not really doing tie in anymore unless you consider my camera tie in, which it, it kind no, of I consider is. that passing the torch. It is, but I mean, you know, it's with the estate, and it, it's like it, it's. I'm, I, yeah, I, it, it's a borderline thing. Uh, I qualify to be nominated for tie-in awards, so I will say it is a tie-in in that sense. But I was very lucky on the movies that most of what I got were high-end properties and really good scripts, and I was usually given my head in terms of turning the turning the scripts into novels that would seem like they were the books that the movie was based on. So so my novels of, say, Saving Private Ryan, In the Line of Fire, Air Force One, American Gangster, these are good, credible novels, in my opinion, and, and often fool readers into thinking that that's what the movie was based on. Uh, and I take a liberty a lot of tie-in writers don't, is whenever I can, I kind of throw the dialogue away from the script because I don't believe that movie dialogue and novel dialogue are synonymous, uh, that there's a compression in movies in, in screenwriting that mm-hmm. is awkward when you just transfer it to the page. Yes. And at the very least, you've got to flesh it out. It may all be in there, but it's, you know, uh, it's, there's this other stuff. Sometimes you can't, but usually I was able to do that. But then otherwise I would, would be, religiously follow the script in terms of of action uh i used to call it following the script out the door i mean i always i everything was in the in the order that was in the script but uh i would try to fill in character stuff i would do scenes that weren't in the screen in the script and uh, there's some pretty good books out there you 571 wind talkers uh one of the best was from a not terribly good script, uh, Daylight. But that that was something I brought, I think, a, a, a interesting treatment to. The only time I ever felt that uh, I hadn't transcended the material or done the material justice, let's say, was the last one I did, and that may be why I haven't pursued it since. But I did do the first G.I. Joe movie as a novel. Okay. And... I really felt I just sort of fought that script to a draw. <laughs> I really did. I thought I, I, I thought I did the best I could. I think it's readable, but I never figured out a way to, you know, to, uh, again, to turn it into what I would consider to be a real novel. Uh, some days, you know, they're hard. I mean, I did I Spy, too, and I Spy was tough because... I had grabbed that job because I loved the TV show with, you know, Bill Cosby and Robert Culp. Sure. And then I get the script, and it it wasn't, you know. (laughs) First of all, they had Eddie Murphy playing the Robert Culp part. I'm like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Really? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) and and then you've got Owen, and you've got Owen Wilson playing the Bill Cosby part, and I mean, it just made my head hurt. And so, so there are days as a professional writer when you're you're in, say, the tie-in <laughs> field, where what you do is you do take your, you know, you do pack your lunch and take your lunch box and you, you know, and when you hear the whistle blow, you go up, and you do your job, and you try to do it well and you try to do it professionally and you try never to insult your your reader. I always put 
put my, my byline on those. That was a way of keeping myself honest. The only time I didn't was once when I had two of them out at the same time, and I thought that was a little much. That only happened once. Uh, but, you know, I got to do Maverick, and I, and I was a big fan of the Maverick TV show. Oh, so yes. I just did it as I did not think of Mel Gibson. I just thought of the young <laughs> James Garner and wrote a, a, a great Maverick episode. I had, a, I had a wonderful time doing that stuff. I was able to do a lot of different kinds of books. Then as a suspense writer, I mean, my agent, if I would go to my agent and say, I want to do a science fiction book, he'd say, forget it. You're, you, you know, you write suspense. I mean, maybe I can do horror because it's sort of, but, you know, well, I was able to do science fiction books. I was able to do a Western. I was able to do, uh, you know, Tom Clancy type stuff. I was sure. able to do, you know, all, you know, all kinds of stuff that normally I wouldn't have gotten to do. And I think I became a better writer because of it, because I, I had to deal with kind of different kinds of material than, than I normally had, had done. You know, I mean, my novel Waterworld is pretty goddamn good. I mean, and that's <laughs> saying something, okay? That's actually a pretty good book. And, uh, and my mummy novels are pretty good, too. I love doing those. And that, those aren't wonderful scripts, but I was able to have a lot of fun with them, like, like the movies were fun. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I, uh, it, it was a period. I, the only thing I regret about that period is that now that Amazon and, and, some, and the various boutique publishers are doing a lot of reprinting of, of my old material, I don't own that material. So I don't, I, there's a whole slew of books I wrote that I don't make anything off of. And, uh, you know, so that's not wonderful. Well, but your name's out there, so. No, I, you know. You, you never absolutely. know what's going to connect back, because, like, I was, I was telling these guys, you know, I'm, I'm horrible with names, but reading your bio, and it's like, okay, I've read that, and I've read that, <laughs> and I've read that, and I first found you through a Batman book. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably the, uh, you mean the comic book? Yeah, it's Scar of the Bat. Oh, Scarlet the Bat. Yeah, that's very good, and and uh, that that I really like doing. Uh, that's my Elliot Ness meets Batman thing. Yes. Uh, beautiful art by Eduardo, the late Eduardo Barreto. But uh, my one year I had writing Batman is one of the most uh, has it still made me to this day one of the most hated figures among a certain uh, group of Batman fans. <laughs> and uh, you know, I take with I take that kind of with pride. It's like I, I invented the the I, I invented the Robin that they then all voted to die. You know, very famously, they had a like a phone in about him. Uh -huh. it wasn't, I hadn't been writing it at that time, so in my defense, it wasn't my version that, but it was the version I created. You know, I. Uh, but uh, well, the version you created in the hands of other people became a punk. Yeah, that's true. And 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 what what really happened there was, uh, and I've told this story a few times, so I apologize to anyone who's heard it, but uh, they had a very, a very good, very hot shot kind of young guy who was going to be, who was going to do the, the Batman stuff with me. And he did one issue, and I thought he drew it pretty well, and, but he got, he was way, way behind deadline. And so they, they pulled in another artist who was just sort of a workaday person, uh, and didn't give him any of the character designs from part one of the story. So nobody, I mean, this happened throughout this year I did it. The, the characters would look one way in part one, and then they'd pull in another artist, and they'd look another way in part two. And I mean, I had, I think, something like 
I did 12 issues or something, and I had like eight or eight artists, I think. Wow. And it was a mess. It was just a mess. And I actually quit. Uh, so, you know, you, you kind of sense you're going to be fired here pretty soon, but I did I actually beat them to the punch. Uh, and, uh, which is too bad because I really love Batman. And, um, I did get to write the, for a while, the, the, the newspaper strip. I wrote the first, uh, the first continuity of, of the newspaper strip that was out when, uh, you know, the Tim Burton yes. movies were out and they wanted me, uh, the DC people wanted me to write the strip, but my, uh, my lovely bosses at the Tribune, who uh, I was doing to Tracy Force, said that if I wrote the strip, they'd fire me and sue me if wow. I wrote Batman. So better part of valor was that I only wrote that first story. But, um, you know, I grew up on Batman. I love Batman. But I think a lot of, a lot of the problem that the Batman fans have with me is that I say nice things about the Adam West version of Batman. And, That's uh, fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's, we, you know, I, the only thing I can say is cause I understand this. I understand being a comic book nerd because I was a comic book nerd before the term existed. You know, I was the guy in high school who read comic books. Yep. Mm-hmm. The guy. And you know, that's, if you're in a pretty good size high school and you're the guy reading comic books, you are a comic book nerd. And, you know, so I know the kind of, you know, getting made, and in those days you'd really get made fun of for stuff like that. So they feel that um, the that, that TV show was making fun of them, essentially, making fun of their enthusiasm. Uh, and I, so I get it. But if you really look, I mean, you know, Bill Finger wrote some of the episodes. Yep. <laughs> you know. And a lot of them really, really did play right out of, were based right out of the comic book. That's what that comic book was like. Oh, sure. I still contend that Murgis Barrett is the most accurate Penguin ever. He, he's fantastic. <laughs> and, you know, they're a lot, those, they were a lot of fun. And, and what that sh- the success of that show did was jumpstart an overall societal interest in comics. That that happened, and then the pop art stuff happened, and... You know, it's like Mickey Spillane. They they spark something, and it always kind of bugs me when people don't understand that and respect that. You know, it's like I would say to people, you don't have to like Mickey, but you should recognize what he did in the culture. And he's one of the greats. And I would say that about the Batman TV show. It really it helped Marvel. I mean, Marvel was doing okay. Yeah. Just okay. I, you know, it might not have survived if the Batman thing hadn't happened, and you know they started putting this pop art thing on their covers up in the corner and stuff. So I really feel like uh, that show had a lot to do with with where with the the, the the resurgence and the widening of interest in comics, and it was brilliant because it was designed so that little kids could watch it one way. And adults could watch it another. Yes. And you know, yeah. and I and I loved it. I loved it. And I and I you know, I wish they'd release it, but I guess it's got legal issues. Well, we're getting closer. They're, they've made a they've made a toy line now. Really? Yeah. Have, yeah. have you not seen these? No, I have not. The the, the uh, they have the standard. I guess it's uh, six inch action figures. They're um, they're photorealistic to uh, to the characters. 
What's I want great? to get my hands on a Joker so that I can see if Cesar Romero has his mustache. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, I, yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun, and uh, I I I kind of you know I the other thing was I've been kind of publicly not a fan of the uh, you know the Dark Knight trilogy, which you, you're me, in good company. Yeah, makes, a, makes me a pariah among many. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I rant legendary. Good. Why are we it's... putting you up on a pedestal today, sir? <laughs> you are one of my people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just so so ridiculously. You know, we we talked briefly, touched on this. Uh, there, there's a kind of. I look at something like One Lonely Night, and there's 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 a, a real darkness in there, and then I look at some of the stuff today, and to me, there's it's a juvenile darkness. It's a phony darkness. Yeah. And 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 that's a hard thing to quantify, but uh, again, it, it on some level is still an overreaction to maybe people. If, if if we can convince people that Batman is this really serious thing, then we won't be comic book nerds anymore. And it's like no, just in, embrace your embrace your inner comic book nerd. Don't yeah. I, don't see, worry I, what I, other people think. I remember this because. I was reading Batman comics in 89. Yeah. Right before the, the Tim Burton craze. Mm-hmm. And I will never forget this. I went and picked up the tie-in novel for that movie first because uh-huh. I was afraid they were going to screw it up. And sure yeah. enough, they did. But I went to the movie theater begrudgingly about three weeks after it opened yeah. just to kind of see and didn't tell anybody. And by that point, all my friends had Batman shirts and Batman yeah. posters and, I'm sitting there with my stack of comic books going, you posers. <laughs> no, no, no question. Uh, you know, I wasn't a huge fan of those, those movies either. Uh, but, you know, I, I had, I had made this prediction that the movie wouldn't work because I didn't think that, uh, and this, they, they haul this out sometimes in print. This, this is something I said, like maybe in 1984 or something. And when, when I, I said that the people would always look silly in the, you know, the long underwear. I mean, like if you see what, what the old serials were, sure. what, what they looked like. And I, I just this. had not anticipated what they would be able to do with, you know, the modern costuming. And they've done, you know, just incredible things. And there have been some fantastic, I mean, there have been some fantastic comic book movies. Um, not necessarily from... Famous comic books. Sometimes, I mean, I I, I thought Kick Ass was great. Yes, I, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> I liked, you know, and I I considered the, the RoboCop, the original RoboCop, was, to me was a comic book movie. That was a superhero movie, and I thought it was, yeah. thought it was great. So it can, you know, can be done, and it looks like this new Iron Man might might be pretty darn good too. So I um, saw it last night. I've got mixed feelings. I, well, I think I'm, the directing was a little off. I'm looking forward to it, and uh, you know, and I like the Avengers movie very much. Yes, mm-hmm. um, I think Josh Whedon was an excellent choice because he has that nice. He seems that you know he he can be serious without losing his sense of humor, and and that's a gift. Yeah, he's uh, good with interpersonal dialogue with very, multiple characters too. Very and 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 made made them believable, and mm-hmm. you know I always feel like that when. Robert Downey would come into a, to a scene in there, and I would say, you know, whatever they're paying him, it's not enough because he's he, he sells it. He just makes a play. 
So, you know, uh, but you can tell I like, I, I still love this stuff. And, uh, you know, but, uh, but yeah, if you, you can, you don't have to go searching very far to find people who, who, who think I'm the Antichrist because of, of what I did to Batman. Well, you know, like I said, you're in good company here, so <laughs> you are amongst friends. Uh, well, it's, this this is this has been a lot of fun. Did you have anything else you wanted to cover before I? I have so many things off. I want to cover, but I don't even know where to begin <laughs> at this point. I feel like I can geek out with you for the next three weeks. Well, we we got to be careful of that. <laughs> Eventually, we'll need a bathroom break, and and I'm That's I'm true. older than you are, and that comes faster <laughs> with me. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> You, you boys have weak bladders to look forward to. Let me just tell you that. Uh, it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> okay, guys. Well, I've hogged the mic. Do you guys have questions? No, I, I think he's covered pretty much anything I could have even imagined asking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've done a really good job. The only thing I might ask you at this point in time, because I got into Dick Tracy, and I this may say a lot about me. I, I started watching it because of... Uh, watching Anna because of the movie. Uh, yeah. Who, who is your favorite uh, Dick Tracy villain? My favorite Dick Tracy villain, uh, it's very tough. It's very tough. It would be probably a tie. I'm going to be, I'm going to cheat. Flat top and the brow, I would say. Um, I, the brow is just a phenomenal story, uh, and the uh, it, it, and the flat top is just a great character and a beautifully designed character, and of 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 characters I created for villains I liked the first one I did was flat top's daughter Angel Top and I like her, and I did a character called Putty Puss that I thought was pretty cool because he 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 was he was somebody who could shape his face into you know, the face of anybody else, but it only held so long before it started to melt. And I thought yeah. that was pretty cool. So, yeah. but, uh, you know, I am writing the introductions to those wonderful reprint books that IDW is doing yes. of the, of the Tracy strip. Oh, nice. And, uh, you know, so I recommend those books and, and I do, you know, do take a look at my, uh, and my introductions. Cause there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of fun stuff in there. I sometimes talk about things that Chet Gould told me and, uh, you know, just personal stuff, behind-the-scenes stuff. So they do – IDW, I'm sure you're familiar with the comic strip reprints they're doing. And Dennis Kitchen, who's an old friend of mine, he's the guy who actually started in this tree comic book. Uh, he's, he's, he's the mastermind behind those books. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. they're very cool. All right, gentlemen. Uh, I, I think I will, will, uh, will take my leave now, and thank you very much for – Letting me babble on like oh, this? No, no, thank no, no, no. you. Yes, thank you for yeah. spending some of your very valuable time talking with us tonight. It's my pleasure, and I hope you guys will all check out Complex 90. It'll be arriving in the mail very shortly. Cool, forward. cool. I will be all over that. All and right. If I could, uh, could we invite you back when sure. uh, when the next Heller book comes out? Yeah, uh, you know, you're in Dallas. Let's 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 do some more crazy and uh, assassination conspiracy stuff. Absolutely. All right. All right, but re- <laughs> you have to read the book first, then we'll do it. I'm okay? there. Sounds good. All right. right, gentlemen, have a great weekend. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. All right, that was awesome. That was incredible. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, I wasn't expecting anything like this, and it was far better than anything I could have hoped for. Oh yeah, that that was um, wonderful. Uh, and I, I would just like to deeply thank Mr. Collins again for spending so much time talking with us, because that was incredibly entertaining. Yeah, we we asked him on email. He he asked <laughs> us how long we figured this would go, and I told him I said oh, twenty thirty minutes, unless you feel chatty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I also want to thank Tom Green over at Titan Books for all the great stuff he's done for us too. Because without him, I don't think we would have been able to have this conversation. Yes, we are greatly indebted to to Tom and Titan Books. Yeah, Titan has been. I am us very just. <laughs> I, I'm speechless. I I I feel like I've been in the presence of greatness. Yeah, yeah, it's. It's one of those things where the name itself I've seen around. I mean, I know a lot of people that have read the CSI books that Mr. Collins has written and uh, listening to him talk about so much stuff. I was absolutely spellbound when he's talking about Mickey Spillane because he's one of those guys when he talks about this stuff, he makes you want to get more involved in it because he's so passionate about it. Yeah, he, he is extremely passionate about it and he's, basically carrying on the legacy for some of the great greats here you know Mike Hammer um Dick Tracy yeah and you know several so of nothing the, of his own legacy exactly so. I'm, you know I, I just realized the question I forgot to ask him <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering now if there's somebody along the lines that's looking to to pass off some of his torches that he's mentoring you know, yeah <laughs> yeah well, if not, I kind of want the job now. You should write that down for your um for our, our follow up interview with him. Yes, his uh, well, Nathan Heller book comes out in October. He's already given you the pattern of what you need to work with here. <laughs> you write him about a hundred letters and wait till he sends you the one. Yeah, yes, you get and then books published. Yeah, but exactly. You know, it's, it's just not the same in email. Yeah, it's, it's not the same. You need to physically write these letters out, and then uh, sometime at a convention. Yeah, you're going to be a liaison to him, to the others, and he'll be really grateful that you wrote all those letters to him. Yeah, but I'm nowhere near as good of a writer as he is, so... Uh... <laughs> yeah, well, he'd be looking at me like, uh, yeah, we stop here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's practice. It's all practice, I'm certain. And, you know, it's one of those things. He has a very good gift with words. Uh, you've got Clearly, I don't by the amount of time I've been stunned. <laughs> so well it really all depends on the day i suppose this Maybe was so. not i'm this content to be a fan day. yeah this wasn't your average day though and it's better than your average day for me oh yes. yeah all right so um tomorrow we're going to be doing free comic book day at, at comic book craze and star wars day may the fourth be with you <laughs> really <laughs> <thinking>? <laughs> I wondered. I was wondering how who who of us would break first on that one. But okay. <laughs> so yeah, we will be recording um, live at Comic Book Craze tomorrow during Free Comic Book Days, and we'll be putting Star Wars Day podcast out after that. <laughs> and um, for our Audible recommendation this week, we are going to recommend one of uh, Mr. Collins's Mike Hammer audio plays that he wrote called uh, The Little Death. It's the New Adventures of Mickey Spillane's My Camera Volume 2, The Little Death, available on Audible. 
And we'll have a trailer at the end of the show for that. So anything else you guys want to add? I got nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I think we covered it all. All right. So I guess until tomorrow, goodbye. See ya. See you later. Thank God you're all right. Kiss me, Mike. Oh, sure, baby. Angela Peters was a gorgeous, well-arranged 35. A blonde in a black, lacy dressing gown. She was in mourning, after all. Her penthouse said money, from the sleek Art Deco decor to the view of the city behind sheer, drawn balcony curtains. Did you... Did you find him? Did you find that filthy killer? Yeah. Did you kill him, or... I let him go. You let him go? Ten-story drop. They're scraping him off the sidewalk with the rest of the dog shit. Mike, I'm glad you did it, but that's horrible. Well, that's death in the fast lane, doll. You want a cigarette, darling? No, no, no. I told you before, that stuff can kill you. You're sure he's the one? Yeah, I'm sure. Unless I decide to go back and finish off his boss. What, that hoodlum Carmen Rich? Yeah. Carmen didn't want to give me Vetter's address. That cost him a kneecap. Oh, Mike. I'm with you all the way on finding Jack's killer, but please, no details. Uh, Don't ask, don't tell. I made myself at home, sitting on the couch near a framed photo of Angela and her late husband, Jack. A loving couple, though he was considerably older. Dead now, which was way older. She sat beside me, perched on the edge of a cushion. Is something wrong, darling? I know you too well. Oh, yes, you certainly do. We have nothing to be ashamed of. We were just two lonely people, comforting each other, mourning the best man either one of us ever knew. These things just happen. Angela, don't you wonder why I let Carmen Rich live? He was the biggest lowlife scumbag in the city. Well... Jack was writing about Carmen Rich. It would have led to Rich eventually, most likely, but Jack wanted to start with Charlie Vetter. If Jack could expose the mob's top contract killer, then all the dominoes would fall, right? Right. But Vetter didn't just work for Rich and those otherwise guys. Vetter was freelance, baby. Anybody could buy his services. How did you know that? He told me. What? What did he tell you? You figured I'd kill Vetter before he had the chance to clue me in. But you were wrong. She didn't think I saw her slip her hand between the cushions and the couch. I didn't figure she was checking for loose change. Mike, this is crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. Sweetheart, this wasn't about the mob wiping out a crusading Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter. This wasn't about stopping an expose of organized crime. No. This is about double indemnity policies and shared assets and summer homes and greed. All those things. But mostly, Angela, this is about you. No, Mike. You're wrong. It was about you, about us. Her chin was high and her breast thrust at me accusingly under the sheer black lace. I wished I was wrong. But the hand she held behind her back said otherwise. I wanted to be with you, Mike. I 
I lied to you, I admit that, but it's not the lie you think. I fell in love with you, long before Jack's death. Baby, I may not be smart, but I'm not stupid. I love you, Mike. From the first day, and it's been tearing me up inside ever since. It was a sin to have Jack killed. You think I don't know that? But I couldn't let anything stand in our way, and what's done is... Done? Well, isn't it? And now, with Jack's money, we can be together. We can go anywhere, do anything. Sweetheart, do you remember my promise to you, to Jack, at the funeral? I remember, Mike. Whoever it was, you'd kill the killer. Of course I remember. But not me. Surely not me. Why not you? Well, that's a cute little gun, Angela. Or is it a cigarette lighter? Oh, it's a gun, all right, Mike. <laughs> you were wrong about one thing. You are stupid. What a stupid, stupid man you are. Damn it. Pat, get your ass in here before she shoots me. Haven't you got enough on her yet? Mike. Mike, you're what? Thanks for listening to the podcast. Please visit our home on the web at scififx.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at SciFiFX, and we are on Facebook at facebook.com slash SciFiFX. Like us on Facebook, it's an easy way to be kept up to date with all the latest sci-fi news, and you'll be entered to win a free prize. You can also stream our podcast using Stitcher Smart Radio on any mobile device with an internet connection running on iOS, Android, WebOS, or on BlackBerry smartphones. Follow the Fellowship of the Geeks on Twitter at Fellowship Geeks. Check out Geekdom Nation on the web at geekdomnation.com and follow Geekdom Nation on Twitter at Geekdom Nation.